So Revelation chapter 9, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like the crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality or their thefts. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray. Spirit of truth, we pray that you would guide us into all truth. Lord, may we remember that Your word, when it goes out, does not return void, but accomplishes the purposes for which you sent it. So, Lord, may your purposes come to pass even this morning. Lord, may our faith be in that promise that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that it helps us navigate this present evil age that we live in as we await the age to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With the release of a new film, there's often, along with that, released some behind-the-scenes footage. And in these behind the scenes footage, you're able to see what the film looked like from a completely different perspective that you would have never known about if you would have only seen what you see right there in the finished product on the big screen. So for example, in the finished film, you see this beautiful scenery, these wonderful backdrops, these massive explosions, these stunts that you couldn't imagine happening and all these animations. But then you watch the behind the scenes footage and you realize there's green screens, there's choreography, There's dozens of cameras set up in unique ways, in unique spots. There's computer-generated images. 
And all of this went into producing the finished film that you see on the screen that you wouldn't have realized had you not seen the behind the scenes footage. And so what the behind the scenes footage does is it helps you gain a fuller, more accurate picture of how what you're seeing on the screen actually came to be. And the reason I bring that up is because it provides a helpful illustration for one of John's purposes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing to us the book of Revelation. John, in a sense, is giving the church the behind the scenes footage of what is going on in heaven and in history as it's unfolding so that as believers in Christ, we can gain a fuller, richer, more accurate picture of why things are the way they are, how things are going to be, and what God is up to in all of it. And sometimes we can slip into the mindset that we, just physical material people, are living in just a physical material world trying to make the best of a physical material life. But John here in Revelation pulls back the curtain and unveils the behind the scenes of the physical world footage for us and helps us see that there is so much more to reality than what we just take in through our physical senses. That there is the natural and there is the supernatural. There is the seen and there is the unseen. And I thought it'd be appropriate to use a cinematic pun. John is helping us develop our sixth sense, as it were, in which we live not just by faith, or we, not, we live not just by sight, but by faith. That we look not just what at is seen, but at what is unseen. In particular, in Revelation 9, John takes us behind the scenes of the physical realm that we occupy so that we can understand that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the unseen realm. In other words, John helps us see symbolically through rich imagery what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 very didactically and straightforwardly, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers over this present spiritual darkness. And therefore, we need to stand strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God that he supplies us with. And as with all things in scripture, we need to keep in mind the point of the writers informing us is that we might be equipped. The point of being informed is that the believer might be equipped to stand. Think about it like this. The reason a football team in preparation for a game studies hours and hours of film of the offense that they're going to face on Saturday or Sunday is not for entertainment purposes. It's not out of mere curiosity. It is so that they'll be better prepared and better discerning to defend what they're going to face on game day. And so, Revelation, believe it or not, is not written so that Christians can mass market bad fiction or nonfiction. It's not written so that we can make ridiculously complex charts that look very interesting on a spreadsheet or a graphic design software. And it is certainly not writ written so that we can scratch our conspiracy itch. Revelation is written so that the Church of Christ might know how to live faithfully as they eagerly anticipate the return of Christ. Revelation, in one sense, is about the here and now, right now. It's about how you are meant to live faithfully in the here and now as you eagerly anticipate the then and there when Christ comes back. And so we're going to look at Revelation 9 this morning and see what lessons we can learn about how to live faithfully amidst the spiritual warfare of this present evil age. And the first lesson we're going to learn is that there is a formidable leader of the spiritual forces of evil. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 9. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. 
And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Throughout the Bible, the leader of the spiritual forces of evil is given a variety of names. And each of those unique names gives us a unique insight into the identity and the characteristics of this spiritual supernatural being. So for example, in verse one, we're given kind of a descriptive phrase, a title of this supernatural being. He's called the star fallen from heaven. And notice it is in the past tense, the star fallen from heaven. Very important to note that because this helps us understand something of the origin and demise of Satan, who is the ultimate embodiment of that proverb, pride comes before the fall, or those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And Jesus alluded to this very situation in one of his uh, conversations with the disciples. So it's in Luke 10. In Luke 10, he had just sent out the disciples two by two as a large group to go about a mission in the kingdom of Israel to proclaim that the kingdom is coming. And they come back to Jesus and they're, they're exuberant. They're, they're joyful. They said, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. And Jesus says to them, he enters into their joy with them. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Almost the exact same phrase that John uses here in Revelation, Jesus uses there. And both of those phrases, the star fallen from heaven and fallen from heaven like lightning, have as their background Isaiah chapter 14. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah 14, I think this is really important to see for yourself. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15. There's more questions and there are answers given the, the origin of Satan, but we get some of the answers here in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. This is what Isaiah says. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, again, there are more questions than there are answers regarding Satan's origin. But what we see here is Isaiah kind of peels back the layers and unveils some of what this spiritual enemy is and what where he came from. That as we can piece it together, Satan was at one time an angel of great prominence in God's heavenly court, who in his pride was not content even with that position. He wanted more. And in fact, he convinced others to join him in gaining this more for himself. And then he was cast down by the Lord and consumed in his pride. And he was actually turned over to his pride. So he'll ever be contending with God and yet ever being overthrown and thwarted by God. And in one sense, what we, what we see is this story of Satan's pride playing out over and over again in human history and in the human heart. That pride at its core whatever form it takes, whatever shape it takes, is none other than contending for supremacy with God. That's what pride is. It is ugly, and that's why God has his strongest words for pride. For example, in Proverbs, believe it or not, there are things God hates, and at the top of the list, he hates pride. And what we see that all the time is in human history, the ambition and discontentment of the human heart always wanting more, always craving for more and better and more than others, And it's the playing out of this demise of Satan in the human heart over and over again. And the fact that in verses one and two, the fact that he's given the key to the bottomless pit, to the abyss, your translation might say, shows 
that he has a real, albeit limited lordship over the other fallen spiritual beings that he oversees. In one sense, their judgment in in following Satan in his kind of usurping rebellion, they now have to be ruled over by him. They get nothing in the end except to be ruled over by this prideful fallen being. And this helps us understand to a degree why in places like Ephesians 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, he's called the God of this present age or the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We'll say more about that a little bit later. Well, verses 1 and 2 give us insight into his origin and position. Then verse 11 of Revelation 9 gives us insight into his intent and purpose in all he does. So look at verse 11 with me in Revelation 9. It says this, they, that is this, this demonic spiritual forces of evil, have as king over them, The angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. And both of those words mean destruction or destroyer. And they reveal that the unifying aim, the unifying scheme in all that Satan does is to seek to destroy anything and everything that is associated with the Lord. That is his one overarching scheme. He wants to destroy truth by spreading lies and his false deceptive propaganda. He wants to destroy goodness by normalizing evil and causing it to be celebrated in the world. We have a culture that calls good evil and evil good. And he wants to destroy life by promoting death in any form that he can find it. And you can find many and a myriad of examples of this in our own world and throughout history. And behind this is demonic deception. And so what does that mean for us as believers seeking to live faithfully amidst this present evil age? Well, the apostle Peter tells us. And interestingly, Peter knew what it was like to be in spiritual warfare. Remember what Jesus said to him? Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And said, Peter says, okay, learn from me. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. There is a spiritual alertness and vigilance needed because, 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is a spiritual alertness and a spiritual vigilance that is demanded of the Christian because we live, as it were, behind enemy lines, that we need to be awake and alert. Now, we certainly don't want to overestimate Satan, but Peter wants to make sure that we don't also underestimate him. As one author has said, Christians need to remember that they are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest. So in and of ourselves, we do not have the resources for this spiritual warfare, which is why, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress or kids in Little Pilgrim's Big Journey, we need to regularly go into the Lord's armory and grab the sword and the shield and the helmet and the breastplate and all prayer and the shoes that the Lord has given us that we might be equipped with the Lord's armor to stand in this fight in this evil day. Well, the second lesson we need to learn is regarding the characteristics and tactics of the spiritual forces of evil. Look with me at verse three of Revelation chapter nine. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So what we're being shown here through these symbols and imagery is that this leader we just read about also has an army that he commands and commissions by his limited authority. And notice once again, as we saw last week with the trumpets, 
that there's a direct parallel between the trumpets as John records them and some of the plagues in Exodus during that Egypt uh, scene in the life of the nation of Israel. And these plagues in Egypt give us some insight into how we're to understand these trumpets. And it's important, one of the principles of reading Revelation to understand it is to read Revelation backward rather than reading it forward. And what I mean by that is we're so prone to look at Revelation and think this is some kind of magical crystal ball that helps us peer into the future. And we wonder, you know, how is John describing Apache helicopters with these locusts? That's not what he's doing, okay? We want to look in the future and think, he saw locusts and they had women's hair. That's like the wings of Apache. No, that's not it. We read backwards. We look at what imagery is John drawing from in the Old Testament to teach us spiritual truths about how to live in this present evil age as we await the return of Christ. Scripture, not the newspaper, is the best interpreter of Revelation. Scripture interprets Scripture, not the newspaper. Well, what then is John drawing our attention to by reminding us or kind of alluding to those plagues in Egypt? Well, the plagues in Egypt, like that eighth plague, which were the locusts, were designed by the Lord to judge and warn a proud, rebellious kingdom like Egypt. They judged, those those plagues judged the pride of the nation of Egypt because they failed to listen to the one true God and all the warnings, all the, the things he had given them to repent of. And it judged them because of their mistreatment of the people of God. And think of when Paul first meets Jesus on that road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord struck him blind because he was harming the people of God. And they also warn. They are limited judgments that are pointing to a greater judgment to come if one does not repent in light of them. And so the reason John alludes to the plagues of Egypt and the seven trumpets is because These trumpets and what they release serve a similar divine purpose in judging the rebellious, unbelieving world and warning them of a greater judgment which is to come, that they might turn and repent. C.S. Lewis has that great line in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world. And that's one of the functions of these trumpet blasts. And so now as these locusts are named and described, as you can tell, I don't think we're meant to take them as literal descriptions, but as symbolic descriptions that help us identify characteristics and tactics of this fallen spiritual army. And one reason why I take the symbolic approach is because of what John says in verse four of Revelation nine. Look there with me. So these locusts, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree but only those people who do not have the seal of God on our foreheads. So literal locusts, they do one thing and one thing only. They eat grass and trees and plants. That's what they do. And John is saying, but these ones don't do that. And I think why John is saying that is he's cluing us in to basically saying, don't expect literal locusts. Instead, expect spiritual warfare from the forces of evil to have a locust-like effect on the world. So think of it. What effects do real locusts have on real land? Well, they destroy and devastate. When you have a crop and you're, you're growing, I don't know what people grow, uh, you're growing wheat or something like that, um, or a mango tree. I don't know if locusts eat mango tree, but I would like a mango tree. So if locusts ate it, I'd be very disappointed. And what they come is they come and they just ravage it so that once they're gone, nothing is left. It has been devastating. Destroyed. And then you have no physical sustenance to now draw from the land. That was part of the judgment on the nation of Egypt, taking pride in the fact that they survived the famine, that they had these resources, and the locusts come, and the physical land is gone and devastated. 
So, the parallel is, at times, the spiritual forces of evil will have a locust-like, destructive, and devastating effect on the spiritual landscape of humanity. So instead of the abundance of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you're going to have an abundance of the fruits of selfishness and despair and hopelessness and ungodliness and greed and lust, and on and on you go. The opposite of the fruits of the Spirit. So John is using the physical symbolism of locusts to make spiritual points, almost like a parable, as it were. But notice throughout this chapter that these locusts take on quite an interesting and complex array of characteristics. Now, before I read this, you know, kids, maybe I'll give you a challenge. I don't know if your parents will like this challenge. But read Revelation 9, 7 to 10, and see if you can draw a picture of what is described there. And, and bring me your picture. If you bring me your picture, I'll, I'll buy you a bigger piece of candy. I don't know if parents, you want your kids drawing demonic armies, but I think we have biblical precedents here for at least attempting to. Well, here's how John describes these locusts. They're not just locusts, because look at verse 7 to 10. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. So Bible scholars call what John is doing here composite imagery or kind of prophetic blending. So what John is doing is John is taking a number of what seems like unrelated symbols and images from different Old Testament places, namely the prophets, and he's combining them all together in one to make a more vibrant and multifaceted point than if he would have just stuck with one image of locusts. So the way I think of it is like this. I don't know if, if so when I was a kid, I got to go to a, a baseball camp uh, for, I think, kids who are 12 to 18 years old, and you're basically playing baseball all day without the supervision of your parents. And every meal we got to eat was in a college dorm room, and the soda fountains were always open all the time. So what does a 12-year-old do when he has free access to the soda fountain? Well, I like Mountain Dew, and I like Fanta, and I like lemonade, and I like Dr. Pepper, and I like Gatorade, and I combine it all together so that when I'm done, I have all of my favorite things in one drink. Well, I think that's a good illustration. Probably, there's more intention in John than there was in me. But what John is doing is he's, he's like that kid at the soda fountain who's combining all these different things into one beverage. He's, he's taking an image from Exodus chapter 9. And then he's taking another image from the prophecy of Joel 1 and Joel 2. And then he's taking a little bit of Jeremiah 46. And then he's topping it off with a little bit of Psalm 58, 3 through 6. And he's combining it together here in Revelation 9, 7 to 10 so that his point is more rich and fuller and multifaceted so we can understand more of the tactics and characteristics of this fallen spiritual army. So let me try and walk through some of the various descriptions he gives and see what they communicate to us. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to go through a couple of them. So in verse 7, he mentions that their faces were like human faces, which seems to indicate that this was no dumb spiritual army of locusts. Locusts are generally not intelligent. They just eat grass. But there is an intelligence here, a uh, craftiness, a, a cunningness to this spiritual army, these spiritual forces of evil. And then in verse 8, he mentions that their hair was like women's hair. Now, I take this as a subtle reference to Proverbs 5 through 7. Now, if you were to read through Proverbs 5 to 7, it's Solomon talking, as it were, to his son and saying, Son, beware of the forbidden woman. 
that her, her lips drip like smooth honey, that she entices and seduces and allures and watch out for her. And I think what John is showing here with this, this uh, uh, subtle illusion is that one of the main tactics of the spiritual forces of evil is through the temptation of seduction and allurement, appealing to the pleasures. Think of it like in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, why C.S. Lewis has the, witch being a, the white witch who offers Turkish delight to Edmund, appealing to him through his appetites and drawing him in. One of the prime tactics of Satan is, as 1 John 2 tells us, to appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. He offers the attractive bait of pleasure, but what he hides is the hook of sin and all of its consequences. He makes it seem as if we can play with fire and we won't get burned. But Solomon tells his son in Proverbs, can a man play with fire and not get burned? And the answer is absolutely not. And he says it in that reference to the forbidden woman. Now, understand, I'm, I'm not against women. This is not what John is saying here, okay? It's an image. It's a symbol, all right? Nothing wrong with women's hair. This is not a subtle reference to wearing head coverings or anything like that, okay? But we need to know is that in the world that we live in, which often appeals to us, seduces us, allures us, tempts us to our pleasures, that these are only Satan's welcome signs along the road to destruction. And we need to recognize them for what they are. And since the seductive power of temptation most prominently thrives in secrecy and in darkness, it is always wise, even necessary, I would say, to have close Christian companions with whom you can confide in, with whom you can bring things in the light to, so that this power of the evil one does not continue to reign in our own hearts and lives. Well, then look at verse 10. It mentions that they have tails and stings like scorpions. So there's all these composite imageries coming together, but then he talks about the tail, which stings like a scorpion's tail. And this is repeated again at the end of verse 19. So he keeps alluding to the tail and the sting of a scorpion. And the imagery seems to be this, that whatever promise and pleasure temptation holds out to us on the front end, on the back end of it, we are always eventually left with the sting and venom and poison of the consequences of sin. That it might seem great right at the outset, but as it goes on, it always brings forth death. It always brings forth the venom and pain and sting of sin and its ugly consequences. The tail end of sin is always deadly. The front end always looks great. Think of it like being duped and conned in a financial scheme. Usually what happens in financial schemes is on the front end, you're given these wonderful promises of if you just invest this much, you're going to get this much back. And it's always a you know, small investment, but it's always a grand return. And then on the back end of this Ponzi scheme or whatever it is, you feel the sting of not only no financial gain, but much financial loss as you've put in this and you see nothing back. And that's always the sorrow of those who kind of give in to these temptations. And it's a perfect parallel to the temptation of sin. One commentator helps us ponder the spiritual sting that comes from the spiritual warfare in our world. So many things that seem so empowering, so natural, so enjoyable on the surface actually and usually end up bringing only misery. So many times when people think that they're exercising their freedom to indulge in whatever they want to, find out that what is really happening is that they are becoming enslaved to things that are corrupting and killing them. So many people in our world boast that they are exercising their autonomy, they're being their true self, when in reality they are advertising their servitude and slavery by following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. As Christians, we need to remember 
that the so-called freedom and happiness that our fallen world promotes is only the freedom of one who is jumping out of a plane without the constraints of a parachute. It may seem like you're free for a while, but it ends in misery. And the quote-unquote constraints and hindrances of Christianity are only the protective measures of the parachute we need to ensure a safe landing in this world. It's always reverse, calling evil good and good evil. We need to invert them and remember uh, the truth by God's word. Well, one more descriptive characteristic that is very important to highlight shows up in three places in verses 17 to 19. Look there with me. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. There were blessed plates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. One time. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Two times the mouth is referenced. Then verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths. So three times, John highlights their mouths, spewing these, these images of judgment, smoke and fire and sulfur, things that we often associate with judgment and destruction. Why is he doing this? I think he's doing this to highlight that one of the main tactics of this spiritual force of evil is to spread their destruction and death through deception and lies and false teaching. That the main propaganda method of Satan and the spiritual forces of evil is the spreading of deception and lies and false teaching. And we know this already because in the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, one of the main things that John kept warning the churches about is the false teaching that was outside and inside the church that they needed to guard against. When you read through the letters of the New Testament, you mark how many times there's the warning of wolves coming in among you, undetected, that you need to be aware of, false teaching that has creeped in to the church. And what John is saying is that behind all false teaching, all ungodly ideologies and agendas, is the demonic scheme of deception, the the propaganda of uh, spiritual lies. This was the tactic of the serpent in the garden and has continued on in various forms and various iterations ever since that first time. And so there are overt ways of detecting demonic deception, like when the ideologies and agendas of the world and culture abroad directly contradict what God has said. Satan does this. God didn't say this. God didn't say this. So we have ungodly definitions of things like marriage and gender and family that go on in our world. And behind the scenes, John is saying, is demonic deception. Call it what it is. But coming closer to home within the veil of the church, any supposed Christian teaching that seeks to add to or subtract from scripture is a form of demonic deception. So whether it's through the novelty of this Christian person has discovered some new teaching that no one heretofore has ever discovered, or that some Christian person has said, you know, I have found the lost secret that has been laying hidden for ages that no one else has discovered until I published this book with this person that wants to make money. It is no coincidence that the final warning of the final book of the Bible in Revelation is a warning not to add to or take away from the scriptures. That is no coincidence that that is the final warning. This has always been the battleground for biblical faithfulness and biblical fidelity. We fight two enemies on two different sides when it comes to biblical faithfulness. On one side is the enemy of legalism. And legalism is always the attempt to seek to add extra conditions and extra works to justification. Instead of saying we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, there's something else that must be intermingled in there. And that is the demonic deception of legalism. 
and even when it comes to the growth in the Christian life, legalism seeks to add extra rituals, extra regulations that you need to do, otherwise you're not going to be as, as mature as other Christians. That is demonic deception. But on the other side is the enemy of liberalism, which echoes forth those words of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? Liberalism is the view that the Bible is written in pencil and man holds the eraser, right? Which has the ability to remove anything that makes us uncomfortable or that is not culturally palatable. And in between these two enemies stands the church of Jesus Christ, all believers who confidently need to remember that the word of God has withstood two millennia of the world's greatest criticisms and severest persecutions. Emperors, popes, kings, philosophers, all have tried their hand at distorting the scriptures and yet all have died and the word remains. It has been burned, banned, and outlawed more than any other book in all of history, yet to this day it still stands as solid as a rock, like an ancient anvil that has worn out many hammers without a single dent made to the truth of its claims. Because Jesus has said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And this is why the best safeguard against false teaching is the regular, prayerful, humble, spirit-dependent study of the word of God. Nothing supplies more spiritual fortification against Satan's propaganda efforts than having the sword of the spirit and making sure that it is sharp at your side. Well, finally, the last lesson I want us to learn from this chapter is that there are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. There are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. We don't want to, enter, we, we don't want to underestimate the spiritual warfare that rages on in this world. But we also don't want to overestimate our enemies either. We do not live in a dualistic world where good and evil are two equal and eternally opposed forces and we're, we're just hoping that one rules out over the other. That might make for a good Star Wars film, but it doesn't work with reality as God has made it and defines it. There's only one eternally existing, self-sufficient, sovereign creator and all other beings, including spiritual beings, are properly called creatures because they're created, they're finite, and they are temporary. So there are a number of places in Revelation 9 where we see the sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. I'm not going to dig deep into each one of them, but I want to list them out for you. So verse 1, the fact that the key to the abyss had to be given to that star fallen from heaven shows that there are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. In verse 4, the restriction on what and who they can harm demonstrates the sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. And then in verse 5 and verse 15, the mention of timelines, whether when it can happen or how long it can happen, shows that there are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. We don't just get that from here. Go outside to the Bible or outside Revelation, other places in the Bible where this is told us. For example, in Job, Satan has to go to the Lord, have counsel with him and ask his permission to test Job. That shows that there are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. And especially in the gospels, when Jesus comes demonstrating his messianic kingly authority, every single demon has to submit to him, has to obey him. And that shows that there are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil. And again, this brings up more questions than there are probably answers this side of heaven. Yet at the same time, it should instill more comfort than it should concern. It instills the comfort of knowing 
that because there are sovereign limitations on the spiritual forces of evil, they will never ultimately be successful in their schemes. As one author has said, Satan's evil campaigns, no matter how craftily he plans them, will always continue to fail. For God uses them to fulfill rather than to hinder his purposes, as he so clearly demonstrated through the death and resurrection of Christ. And this instills the comfort of knowing that the spirit who indwells us is greater than the spiritual forces of evil that occupy this fallen world. Satan may tempt, he may entice, he may afflict, he may accuse believers, but he can never possess a true believer because the Holy Spirit, who has taken up residency in us, has filled the space full, leaving no room for anyone else, and he's not looking for roommates, and he's not looking for new lodging. He is remaining in us. He is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so if you are in Christ, you have the spirit of Christ, which is the seal of God, then you are protected and you get to swim in the comfort of Romans 8, 31 to 39. And one of the comforts of Romans 8, 31 to 39 is that neither principalities nor powers, no rulers, which John is referring to here, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But the inverse we need to be warned about. If you are not in Christ, then instead of having protection from the spiritual forces of evil, you are prey to the spiritual forces of evil. And you need to know that in and of yourself, you do not have the resources to stand. And yet even today, the gospel goes out to you and Christ offers to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of marvelous light. He offers you his promises, his protection, the eternal security that is only found in him and all the armor that he will equip you with graciously and freely. Well, the other comfort this truth provides to the believer is that there are sovereign limitations on the sting that the spiritual forces of evil can inflict because Christ took the ultimate sting of death for us when he died on the cross on Calvary. On the cross, all that sting that is in death that the spiritual forces of evil could have inflicted on us and directed toward us were all directed at Christ and absorbed by him. All the pain, all the poison of death and its consequences was extracted by Christ as he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And that serpent who thought he had dealt that fatal death blow to our savior ends up on Sunday being crushed underneath the feet of our savior who walks out of the tomb in victory over sin and Satan and death. And he holds them open to public shame because he triumphed over them in the cross and in the resurrection. So we can take comfort that though we fight, we fight a defeated foe. He's a sore loser, but he is a loser at that. And we get to taunt our enemy because we can say, where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O grave, is thy victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in this confidence that we have that we can faithfully fight the good fight as we eagerly anticipate the return of Christ, even as we await it and long for it. Let's pray.